Estate Coaching Radio, America's number one trusted resource for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Starring award-winning real estate coaches Tim and Julie Harris. Get ready for unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what is truly working to get you into action and make you money in this new real estate boom. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. We're joined today by Michael Gordon from Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Fox and Roach Realtors, serving the Philadelphia metro area. For nearly the past 15 years, Michael Gordon has been the in-house marketing director for his wife and partner, Robin Gordon. Michael is responsible for the fast response seller marketing campaigns, experienced with integrated marketing technologies, and works closely with technology partners and vendors to ensure that the team's listings get maximum exposure in the local marketplace. With Michael's experience and assistance and under Robin's expert leadership, the Gordon team has achieved over $1.25 billion in career sales and exceeded $159 million in sales in 2014. Now, let's welcome Michael to the call as we join our host, Tim Harris. So, listeners, this is a bit of a homecoming for me, this uh, radio interview, because <clears throat> uh, Michael Gordon and his wife, Robin, were one of my personal first coaching clients back in the late 90s or whenever it was. And um, it's, it's fun uh, sharing and having Michael be gracious enough to set aside 30 minutes of his day to share with you the success that he's experienced. A lot of you are... Uh, wondering how big can you make your practice? How much, like, what's what's the real potential of your real estate business? Um, you know, and let's just get down to the, the heart of it. How much money can you possibly be making? And, and the thing that you're about to learn is that Michael and his wife, Robin, think huge, not just big, but huge. And as a result of that, they're making literally in personal income millions and millions of dollars per year. And I'm sure Michael won't want to, you know, dry, drill down on that too much because it's you know, kind of tacky, but the reality of it is, is that in the country, there's probably very few agents that, A, make as much money as they do in gross commission, but more importantly, B, net as much in personal income as Michael and Robin Gordon. So I want you not just to listen to what he's saying as far as marketing ideas, as far as things that will make you guys say just, wow, I know a lot of you are going to be really inspired by what he has to say, but I want you to be paying extra close attention to the fact that every single thing that Michael says always drives back down to the most important thing in running a business, and that is profit. It's not, you know, we're not going to talk a lot about team building. We're not going to talk a lot about the raw, raw stuff that's very popular when you go to real estate events. You're going to be hearing from a real, honest-to-God business person who happens to be in the real estate business. So without any further delay, Michael, welcome to today's radio show. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate those kind words. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, it is interesting that a lot of agents are, they set limits on themselves, right? They set self-imposed limitations on what they're able to do in their lives. And, you know, maybe it's the type of homes that they sell. Maybe it's the, you know, income they can earn. Maybe it's the lifestyle that they feel comfortable experiencing. Did you ever have similar limitations when you and Robin were first getting started years and years and years ago? I don't really think I had I had those limitations. I think that um, I think I started with uh, – with with something that's common among a lot of top producing uh people and that is uh, a chip in my shoulder a chip on my shoulder that is mm. to say that um I think a lot of people that do very well at some point in their life uh were told that they they never could 
or that um, there was something about them that might uh, prevent them from from achieving big things. And so um, I always sort of uh, had that had that feeling that when I grew up, I was in an area where it was very wealthy, and I wasn't one of the wealthy people. So I looked at myself as someone who wasn't as smart, wasn't as affluent, uh, was sort of not as good as some of these others. And so I developed this chip, and it caused me to um, to work harder uh, than than anybody else around me. And I think that um, I think that motivated me to. Uh, and I don't know if it's fear or whether it was just uh, competitiveness, but I, I think that motivates me even today. Um, and so I didn't think small. I, I always thought big. You know, it, it occurs to me, we better be enlightening. And first of all, not a lot of people, Michael, and I know you're aware of this, outside of the East Coast are aware of the, I don't know what you want to call it, generational wealth that exists uniquely on the West Coast, maybe other places like West Palm, or Palm Beach, not West Palm, but Palm Beach, and you know, outside of uh, that part of the country, there really aren't very many dynasty wealthy type families as there are where you live. So you grew up in an environment where it was people that had made their money, maybe brought money to the United States from Europe when they originally settled here, people that were part uh, that had made their money originally in the Industrial Revolution, you know, back in the days of Rockefeller and things like that. I mean, that was, you know, in the extended family types, those are the types of people that you rub shoulders with. Um, and so in that environment, listeners, he was dealing with about the most embedded, um, I would say, highest possible wall that you could possibly ever have to climb over. Because generally speaking, people in that stratosphere where, you know, Michael originally taught me this thing for ages and ages ago, you know, where the air is truly rare, those people are very um, inclusive. They don't like to, in, in the sense that they don't allow outsiders in. So it wasn't just yeah, insular. In, insular. Thank you. There's another good word. I'll be using that one too. <laughs> so, so the reality, but the reality of it is, Michael, is you and Robin, not just you, you had to break into a very closed, almost caste system. And it, well, how did you do it? I mean, do you remember back well, to the years when you're? Go ahead. I have to tell you, I was I was lucky, and my timing was was great, because when I got involved in the business, there were a couple things about it that I don't think are true today. Um, first, uh, and some of these things are true today, but first at the time, there were, there were really very little if no barriers to entry. At the time, the, the occupation wasn't perceived as remunerative, and there was very little occupational prestige associated with being a, a realtor. So as a result, I don't think back then it attracted the best and the brightest talent. But, but, but enter Bravo TV and reality TV with their portrayal of the Ferrari-driving, Brioni-suit-wearing agent making $150,000 a deal with little aggravation. And I think what happened is reality TV glamorized the occupation, and with it has brought significant new competition to the industry. And, and today, these new entrants are just they're well-financed. They're treating it like a huge business using te technology and sophisticated systems to really scale their practice. So the result is that this competition now has never been more intense. Fortunately, I was lucky, and I got, I got involved at a time when I don't think it was nearly as competitive then uh, as it is now. Also, um, I, I got in right before the boom in 2004 and 2005 and 2006. 
So I think the timing was good for a number of reasons. Um, I think today, if I were to if I were to start now, I think I'd have a much more difficult time. It's interesting you should say that because we've been observing that to a new coaching clients there, and we we tell the listeners that all the time. It's not like it was. You're right, Michael. It's not like it was 20 years ago, where basically it was like if you can't get a job anywhere, you know, if you don't necessarily have the best resume, um, you know you get a real estate license. And if you look at kind of the history of real estate agents, it's kind of a lot of people that didn't necessarily fit into any other industry and or, um, you know, part-timers. And you're right. It is definitely, definitely changing. Um, people are coming to the business with money, too. That's the other thing that's interesting. They're entering this business, seeing it as a business, uh, opposed to the way it was in the past. But going back to the original point, because we do have a lot of actual coaching clients and we have a lot of listeners that – that they know there's this magical city on the hill someplace. They've always wanted to break into that market. And mm-hmm. you and Robin did the similar thing, right? You guys were kind of the outsiders in this little, you know, golden cage environment of the main line and, and, and the Philadelphia area. We, you know what? We didn't tell them where you sell real estate. Tell them where you sell real estate. We concentrate on, on an area that's, that's called the main line. And the main line is a series of towns um, where uh, uh, the railroad was developed, um, and there were a lot of moneyed railroad and other executives that built huge estates in, in this area that have since been carved up. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, these are people that were descendants of the Mayflower. Um, so there's a combination of old money and new money. Uh, and, and what we did is uh, back when back when in 2003 and four when uh, money was available, um, and uh, we got involved with representing builders doing one-off new construction. And we had quite a few builders at the time, and that, that enabled us to really get started on the, you know, on, the, on the luxury side. Now, that has since dried up. There isn't that same kind of uh, construction going on uh, in our area um, to the extent that it was back then. But I think that was a huge. I think that was a huge opportunity for us at the time. Um, what were the biggest obstacles when you were having to sit in front of Mr. and Mrs. Mayflower, fourth generation, very wealthy type, and when they were comparing you against, say, somebody they knew at their private country club, right? Because you were dealing yeah. with that. You were dealing with embedded um, agents who basically had familial ties to a lot of these sellers. They came from the same. Again, a lot of people in the country, Michael. And I hope you're – I mean, maybe you're not – you are aware that the environment that's on the East Coast is unique to the East Coast, the sort of very uh, yes. mm-hmm. you know, Anglophile-type world where basically you are from a wealthy family or you're not. Right, you know, right. The bourgeoisie and the proletariat type thing. That doesn't really exist in other places. So when you are sitting in front of these people that are sort of the aristocratic old you know, American families – how did you overcome the fact that you were not from that environment, or were they actually welcoming of somebody who did have a little bit more of an entrepreneurial digger? I think that's the case. I think that the, the, these these folks were just looking for somebody who could achieve results, and you know certainly they're you know they the country club agent um, who who does a few deals a year had the inside track, but a lot of the a lot of the uh, the deals that we were doing were uh, ones where we were in competition, and we just had to flat out go in and make a pitch, and convince convince them that we could get the job done. Uh, um, I, you know, there wasn't any magic bullets. Now, I have to say 
that my wife was Ivy League educated. She went to the University of Pennsylvania. She went to private schools. and her, So her background was a little bit more um, of a pedigree-type background than mine. Um, she, she grew up with, with, with more money, and she was a little bit more connected, um, not at the level of the people we were talking to, but still, that helped us. Um, that helped us from really seeming like an outsider. There was a great interview, Elon Musk, by the way, great interviews all over yep. YouTube with them. And I love, I watched something just the other day, and he was talking about, someone asked the question, like, so what's the key to being successful? And he just broke it down in the most simplistic of forms. He said most people work on the outside 50 hours a week. He said, so if your competitor is working 50 hours a week and taking the weekends off and not working the evenings, and you work 100 hours a week, um, assuming all things equal, you, just from the very fact that you're outworking them, will win. Is that how you guys did it? Sure. We did it with hard work. At the time, I remember Robin had a pager, and so she was, you know, she would get paid. She would immediately get back to people. And, um, and, and these prospects were so impressed with that. They, I, and I think that skill, at the end of the day, I think skills, skills matter. And if, and if you're able to get the job done, if you're able to perform and you're able to show results that you've gotten for others, I, th- I think that I think that, that you know, I, th- I think that carries it. I, I, you know, relationships are important, and relationships can get in your foot in the door. But, but I think that you still have to. You know, the, the litmus test is what you've what you've done and how you've performed. So uh, we were able to convince you know convince prospects that we could get the job done. How did you do that? Give us some specifics. How did you convince them? We convinced them with a uh, track record. Um, we can we convince them with, uh, uh, with 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 sales that we that that we were able to we were able to uh, achieve and um, uh, demonstrate our success in that way. It's been a while. I can't remember the details of uh, you know exactly what we said, but I, I I think the results were what you know, and they might not have been they might not have been uh, a, a lot of deals at the time, but those that we got. Were, were important, and, and we were able to convince them that we could we could concentrate on on them, make them a priority, not delegate them, not you know, and 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 convince them that we were you know we were going to treat this as a business. You said something in particular that I think is worth drilling down on. You said one of the reasons why you feel maybe one of the elements, main elements to your success and Robin's success has been your feeling that you were a bit of an outsider and, and, and as a result of that you had to work a little bit harder to be a little bit more strategic. Can you drill down on that a little bit more? Because I think that, honestly, that resonates with probably every single one of our listeners. <laughs> well, I don't know that my motivation came so much from being an outsider. I think rather it came from this chip on my shoulder um, in that uh, uh, I had someone in, in, my, in my life who, who told me that um, uh, I, I, needed to, I needed to only count on my, myself. I couldn't count on others. I couldn't rely on others to do anything. Um, and I couldn't depend on them. So I think that, you know, I, I came from this background of um, scarcity and um, – and so I think that I was super motivated and super competitive to make sure that 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 that, that would nev- that I never would have that problem that I wouldn't uh, that I would overcome this chip that I have. So I don't think it was so much being an outsider to the area because 
you know, I've lived in this area my whole life, and so is Robin. So, uh, so, so I think that's where I was coming from. Right. No, I'm sorry if I used the word outsider. That's that's what I. But in terms of essentially being part of the establishment, because you're now selling the houses that the establishment live in, and that's not that's not necessarily something that happened organically. You had to basically work your way into that. It wasn't given to you. I know when Julie and I sold real estate, as you will remember, we sold real estate in an area called New Albany Country Club. And in those in that particular area, the real estate market, as was the case with yours, was dominated by people that basically had most of their listing business from social connections or religious connections. In other words, they were connected, and we are the interlopers, we are the outsiders. So in order for us to get dominance in that market, we had to do what you guys did, which is basically outwork them. And at the end of the day, that's what ran the that's what won the day. The next thing you said yesterday is um, well, let me address that also. Really, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let me no, just address no this. One of the things that 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 happened was at that time was that we have three young children, and the, those the, they were attending schools, um, and the schools were in a small you know small geographic market area, and so we combined the idea of okay, let's do some uh, targeted uh, direct mail to those areas where these families lived. And uh, and I think that the combination of the geographic farming and that relationship marketing sort of bolstered our our results. And and, and so uh, you know when you have young children, there's an affinity for the families. The kids participate in in in, in activities after school. They do soccer. They do dance. They do those things. So you have a chance to interact with these families. And if you you're if you're visible in the mailbox and you're visible in person, new develop new relationships are developed. So I think we were able to sort of um, uh, sort of network our way through the relationships that we developed with our kids at the time. Okay, well you're actually making it a perfect time for me to pivot and talk about marketing and lead generation because that's what a lot of people want to know. Um, so you mentioned postcards. You mentioned working social networks, and I don't mean the online variety. You mentioned uh, you're, you're working uh, within your the, the communities, uh, the schools, and the sports activities, and the other things. So drill down. Let them know. So let's assume, Michael, we're talking with folks that want to be like Michael and Robin, right? They right. want to be like you guys. They want to yeah. have... They want to be making millions and millions of dollars in personal income. They want to have the lifestyle you have. They want to have the success you've had. But they don't want to take as long as you guys have taken to do it. Not like you've taken that long, you know, 10 years. But still, they want to do it quicker. What would be the three or maybe four primary spokes or sources of business that they would want to focus on if they're wanting to sell in high-end or, in your market, ultra-high-end markets? Well, I would – what I would do is I would identify a targeted area that um, that had a reasonable amount of turnover where there was no one dominant agent. And that may or may not be possible, but I think I would start there. And I would have a multi-pronged approach with respect to marketing. I would, um, as I suggested, I would be in the mailbox, and I would do a variety of things um, – from just listed, just sold, to market reports, to demonstrate your success and local market expertise. And at the same time, I would do everything I could to be visible to those very people that you were mailing to. Um, I would at the same time start to explore, 
explore online lead opportunities um, through a variety so of different ways. That, yep. That's a bit. That's a deep well. So let's just pivot back to what you were just talking about, because I okay. promise you, yep. I'll get hate mail, hate email from our listeners if I let you get away with what you just said. Okay. So you said you're mailing postcards. They want to know what the postcards are. Uh, be specific. You said you're mailing market data newsletter. I know what you're talking about, but drill mm -hmm. down and tell them what you're talking about, because you're not talking. You are talking about pieces that look beautiful, that are professionally designed. Uh, that aren't being provided by your broker that were um, that have established a high-end looking brand for you guys it was unique to Michael and Robin Gordon but you're not talking about something that's that sophisticated so let them know give them some details well I think simplicity is what it's all about and I think with direct mail you have a very short period of time where the the recipient is is looking at the mail over their trash can so I think you have to get your point across simply and quickly and only make a couple of points. So the points we try to make is demonstrating our success through uh, just sold, for example, where we'll indicate three or four homes that we sold in the area. We indicate a, uh, a short blurb about our specific um, results for that particular sale, like, for example, sold for 98% of asking in just 18 days. There you and, go. And let's, so, let's, Mike, Mike, just stop there for a second. Listeners, I hope you paid attention to what he just said. A just sold by itself doesn't mean bunk. He, he is saying, we just sold this house, uh, and we sold it, by the way, in 18 days, and then he told them why that was important versus the average days in the market, which is, say, 47. So he's not just saying we sold it. He's explaining to potential sellers why what he just sold was worth them paying extra attention to. They sold it quicker. Then the next thing you guys heard him say is he was talking about list to sell price ratio. Our house, this property sold at you know 99.9% .9 or whatever it was of the original asking price versus the average in the marketplace, which might be only 96 or 97%. So it's not okay just to tell them sold. You have to tell them why they should care, why they should care that you sold it, what makes that sale unique. Otherwise, you know, as they're hovering over the trash can, it's not even going to get read. But if you have some statistical information that's showing why you're better, uh, why this, you know, why you're the better choice, or at least they should consider you, um, you know, that's the type of information that's compelling. Excellent, Michael. Any other little suggestions on yeah, the direct yeah, the other postcards thing, specifically? Yes. The other thing that we do on that postcard is we include a testimonial for one of the sellers who sold, whose homes were sold that we're featuring. So we have, we have multiple homes that we're presenting with a blurb about each one that, that, that describes the result, um, a testimonial. And on the most recent campaign, we added something new. And, um, and, and we've added a tagline that says, Robin sold it. So on the postcard by, uh, you know, it, it says Robin sold it, and we've been, we've been including that on our signage as well, a similar kind of, uh, you know, round circle on the sign that said Robin sold it. And even in the high end, it's interesting, we're starting to get a lot of traction with that where people are repeating that line to us. Um, we go into a listing appointment, and they say, I want Robin sold, sold it on our sign someday. So it's funny the way little, you know, simple tends to work. But don't you think it's also, well, listeners, hear what he just said. Simple works. Make your message quick and, and succinctly and you know, obviously uh, effectively. 
But also, don't be fearful of little gimmicky things like what he just said, because at the end of the day, what's the most important thing to any seller, Michael? What is it that they're looking for ultimately? The highest price and most favorable terms and the least aggravation. And the sign that says sold, right? Sold. At the end of the day, yeah. that's what they're hiring you to do. And sure. um, listeners, uh, don't confuse a service with a result. That's the other thing I know a lot of agents do, is they'll try to sell the service, but ultimately what the seller wants is a result. Don't be confused about that. If you're going to spend, if you think they're buying you because of the wonderful team and your service and all the rest of it, Trust me when I tell you that is maybe 10% of the decision. The rest of it, 90% of the decision, is your track record or at least their confidence that you can deliver the result. Um, you know, so that's what Michael's Cards does and his direct mail does. So you know, they're buying the result. They're not buying the service. Don't forget that. Newsletter. You do a newsletter still, correct? Yes? Yes, yes. Well, what, what it's actually morphed into is a, is a quarterly report, which doesn't present a lot of, of – uh, you know, of statistical detail because I found that that wasn't being received very well, but rather it's, it's our interpretation of what the numbers say. So uh, what we do is we, we, we evaluate the, the numbers and we say in our market, this is what's happening, this is the trend, you know, th and, and, and we find that to be uh, you know, more well-received by, by, the, by, the, uh, by the recipients. I'm sure, because you're translating the data um, and you're showing that you guys are an expert and it's not just some cut and paste from some, you know, punched out newsletter that a lot of agents use. Uh, so postcards, they, these are jumbo postcards. They're on, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, like 80-pound gloss stock. Um, they're like, what, 5 by 7 or what, what's the – They're actually large. They're larger than that now. We're, the, 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 the post office allows for a larger size than – uh, then uh, I, I can't remember the exact dimensions, but I was doing smaller cards, and I and I and I found out that a larger size would would not increase the uh, the cost of the postage. So I increased the size to the to, to the maximum I could, and and still have the same postage cost. So let's go postal nerd on these guys. Uh, yep. uh, carrier routes sorted is what he's talking about. So you guys just Google that and research it on your own. But he's, he's direct mailing to a carrier route, which does make it so your postal rate is less. There's some uh, They treat the carrier route stuff like they treat catalogs, which, in other words, means they can deliver it when they get around to it. You know, So it's not as consistent as a first-class stamp. Uh, so research that on your own. Okay, so the larger format and is important. Because, go ahead. Yeah, and, and the, 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 the key area that you just mentioned is that the – the geographic, the, the, focusing on a geographic area where you're concentrating on a specific area is really important. So not only do you get the most cost-effective rate for the mailing, but it's, but it, but it's, it, it maximizes your results to concentrate in an area where ultimately you'll have, you know, sale signs, you'll have sold signs, and that local market will see. Pardon me. Right. It's reinforcing. The postcards yes. are reinforcing the personal contact, are reinforcing the sold signs, are reinforcing they seeing you guys volunteering it. It's all basically uh, uh, you know, kind of a tartan of success. And I want to I want to show all the elements to that. So let's we'll we'll let me drill down these extra points. A larger format postcard, I'll answer the my the question I was asking you, are important listeners because if you have a larger format postcard and they take all their mail out of their box, and it's just a normal postcard, it's going to hide behind their utility bill, and it will get tossed, 
you know, they just won't pay attention to it, or it'll slip inside a catalog or some other something, so they won't pay attention to it. But a larger format card is beneficial because literally it's just bigger, and bigger means they're going to have, you're going to increase your likelihood that they're going to see it. Um, so there's that. How many postcards do you mail out per month? We're doing uh, right now about 15,000. Okay, you didn't start out at fifteen thousand, though. No, I started. You know, I, I, you know, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. So, uh, I think we started at somewhere around five thousand. We focused on that smaller, you know, area that we tried to, you know, get dominate and get as much traction, and then scaled it larger at a time. Um, so the uh, cost per how frequently do you mail, and what's the cost per card? All in. All in, I think it runs around uh, 20, 29 cents or so. All okay. in, I'm, I'm printing. I'm printing a year's worth of of cards. And, ahead of time. Uh, ahead of time, so that way I don't have yep. to, you know, constantly deal with it. And um, and so you know we're sending them about uh, once uh, once a month. Okay, so you're talking about spending on average less than five thousand dollars a month to mail fifteen thousand cards. Did I do the math correctly? Yep, that's right. Okay, all right. So let's hover there for a second, listeners. The actual number is forty-three fifty. So he's talking about something that's unique. That's you know, it just his one of the things Michael's always done well. He's not going to give himself credit for this. Is he and Robin have a fantastic eye? for um, design, and the cards themselves are beautiful. The logo they have is, I don't know how much you've changed it since, you know, past, over the years, but the, the way that their marketing looks made it so that all their competitor stuff looked like it was from the 1970s. So it was elegant, it was modern, it was classy without being brash, and, you know, there's a balance to all of that. He, he hired a, a boutique design firm out of New York City to come up with this. Now, this was back before you had companies that, you know, or have proliferated the marketplace, all these Elance types, they'll go out and do some great design work for you for nothing. But he spent originally, now this was, you know, years and years ago, he spent originally tens of thousands of dollars to get all this stuff right. The advantage that all of you have, listeners, is that you can find uh, folks like Michael that are selling real estate at a high level, and you can kind of emulate their designs. I know you love me saying that, but it's still true, <laughs> you know, yeah. right? Well, you do yep. a little bit of that, too. I mean, you're paying attention to what top producers are doing, and you're doing a little <clears throat> copy yourself yes Tim there there's no reason to reinvent the wheel amen brother <laughs> <That's> <laughs> nice <he's> that, right? <laughs> well you remember that Chinese proverb right a smart man learns from his mistakes a brilliant man learns from the mistakes of others <laughs> the nice the nice thing about real estate is we have so many great examples of things uh, of, of mistakes that we can avoid if we just pay attention to it all right so that's the direct mail piece um, I yes. think listeners will be surprised how effective it is. How long did it take for you to actually start getting any kind of traction doing direct mail? Was it right away, or did, did, did it take no. a year? Or how long did it take? It took. It was surprising. In fact, I remember when we we sent out our first cards, not getting any response at all, and I called the uh, the the advertising agency, wondering if the cards were actually sent because I couldn't believe we got no response. <laughs> But it, but it actually is sort of like you know you're making you're making a long term commitment to this, and it, it 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 takes a while. I think it took at least a year before we started to see any results at all. So I, if you're going to if you're going to select a geographic farm, pick a size 
that uh, you can afford to stick with it and be persistent for that period of time before you, before you get results. Well, you said something else, right, which is really important, and I shouldn't have let, let it get by. You need to drill down on where you're going to mail. Michael started to talk about um, doing some MLS homework ahead of time, knowing what your headwinds are going to be in terms of your competitors. And generally speaking, Michael, it's very rare to find a market where there isn't a real dominant number one and number two agent. But what you'll find, guys, when you get in the MLS is the number one agent will usually be doing twice the production of whatever number two and three are. Um, but that still doesn't mean that those markets still can't be attacked by a fresh approach because what happens is, especially in small enclaves like where Michael works, I mean small with quotes around it, they'll, the sellers actually kind of get burned out on having so few choices, <laughs> so few options. Yeah, you know, They'll actually look for somebody that's doing something different, uh, uh, you know, taking a more um, maybe aggressive isn't the right word, but a different approach to how to get homes sold. And then um, another thing that you could, should be strategic about is choosing an area where there is turnover. There's certain areas where people just don't move. Well, mailing postcards there is just dumb. Uh, and there's, you know, you look for the days in the market. You want to know the macro trends that are affecting that market. You want to know that, for example, if you're going to start investing real dollars into a particular geographic area with direct mail, that it's going to be viable 24, 36 months from now. So you might want to look at the employment trends in the area. You might want to make sure that there's nothing that's going to make that particular community you're thinking about farming look obsolete in comparison to, say, a new construction area that's going in across town. That happened in our market in Columbus, Ohio. There's this beautiful area called Muirfield, but when New Albany started getting developed, it was clear on the other end of town. It started to you know, basically suck the sales out of Muirfield. So be very, very strategic before you start doing direct mail. And then when you do, you've got to buckle down and look at it as a long-term commitment that you're not going to get any sort of um, benefit from for at least 12 months. You might get lucky, but for the most part, that's really how it works. It's not, you know, it, it's a, um, it's an investment. I like how Michael said that. All right, so Michael, let's talk yes. about other sources of business for you. And please, don't uh, don't just say I network. Okay, be gen- Don't be general. Be specific. Drill down. If you again, you're uh, someone's wanting to emulate your success. They want to accomplish, you know, what you guys have accomplished in half the time. They can only choose three to five things. First thing you said you suggest that they do is direct mail. What's next? Well, we had a lot of success with open houses. Uh, mm. and, and, and interestingly, um, there is an opportunity to not only pick up buyers, but also um, sellers as well. Because we found that sellers are out in the neighborhood looking at homes to try to find uh, who – they're looking they're looking at competitive homes because they're going to put their house up on the market so they want to see what the competition is but then they start to meet the realtors and so um we found that we met a lot of prospective sellers through that uh through that approach the other thing that we did was we 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 did uh uh sneak preview neighborhood open houses so i don't know if you're familiar with that tim sure of course but describe yeah, to the listeners yeah, so, Okay, so the sneak preview neighborhood open house was an open house which occurred before the before the the regular open house, and it, and we invited the neighbors to the house with a thought that perhaps um, they might have someone who would be interested in uh, in that particular house because they're so fond of the neighborhood. But it also gave us a chance to meet them under really favorable circumstances. So again, this was a way to to network with these 
you know, with these local people who were in our, you know, geographic farm under the most favorable circumstances possible. So I think open houses were were uh, were very important to us to gain traction in the beginning. Again, um, half the folks that walk in, generally speaking, and the sneak previews, you're inviting the neighbors. Just listen to everything he's saying, guys. And chances are, those neighbors, uh, you know, you're establishing a relationship with them. There's some rapport. There's some level of comfort. They're seeing that you're making an extra effort to get the property sold. And, you know, Michael, here's an interesting question. How sheepish are you guys about finding out someone's motivation? A lot of realtors hold themselves back because they're afraid to ask relatively direct questions to find out, take the temperature of the actual lead. Uh, what's your mindset about that? Well, I think it's really important to find out what the motivation is, and I think that, you know, the, the key, the, the, I, I know a lot of, uh, the key question is when. You know, we can talk about, you know, what they want and where they want to be, but the when they want to move is the most critical question of all. And I do know that uh, that the idea of, uh, you know, of, 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 of approaching, approaching people and, and sort of being direct might be outside their comfort level, but that's what it's all about. It's, it's asking, asking those kinds of questions um, and doing it in a professional way, but I think it's critical. So, listeners, for example, when you run across a buyer, um, you know, there's a prequel. His coaching clients is actually, I'm going to just message this to you. Use the scripts, at least the first, like, seven questions exactly the way we've written them. The third or fourth question is, by the way, which house in the neighborhood are you thinking about selling? When you're talking with a buyer prospect, make sure you ask that question right off the top. Because what's going to happen is a lot of you guys try to establish rapport. You try to make them like you. You try to find commonalities. You try to fake friend them, right? So in the midst of fake friending them, they know what you're doing. They're not going to want to – nine times out of ten, they're just going to want to get away from you and get off the phone. So when you first get them on the phone, use the script and ask them, you know, third question down from the script, uh, coaching clients, make sure you use it, is, by the way, which house in the neighborhood are you thinking about selling? You will find, you'll be stunned and amazed how frequently they actually have not necessarily a primary home but other properties that they are thinking about selling. So, Michael, here's an interesting um, question a lot of uh, – or challenge, I think, a lot of our other high-end coaching clients have had on the coast. I mean, this happened in New York. It happened in – L.A. during the recession, you know, really at the end of the day, when you're dealing with really high net worth folks, they don't have to sell ever, do they? I mean, there's not really truly a have-to-sell situation. It's always just a strong desire to sell, true or false. Yes. That's, I think that's entirely true, and I think with a lot of those very high-end clients, the price is a function of what it's going to take to extricate them from the house. It has nothing to do with market, <laughs> <laughs> it has nothing to do with market value. Well, it has nothing to do with comps. It has nothing to do with anything, but at what point at which they're willing to, to, to let go and, and, and move on? And, and I'll tell you, we have uh, a couple of, you know, I have a competitor or two in my market that have what I consider to be a listing graveyard of, 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 of properties where these clients are, you know, they have ridiculous prices associated with their homes. And, uh, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in babysitting somebody over a long period of time who has no motivation to sell. That, that to me, I have a different deal. I only get paid when I sell the property. I don't get paid when I list it. So I'm not interested in, you know, and, and the other thing is these, list, you know, listings are not like fine wine. They don't improve with age. 
So I'm, I'm not interested in having a listing that's sitting there unsold for a very long period of time, babysitting a seller who wants an unrealistic price to extricate them from the house. It goes back. It goes back to pre-qualifying, and and really at the end of the day, guys, when you're list, when you're dealing with high end, there very rarely is truly a have to sell seller. There's not a seller that's getting relocated and they can't afford two house payments. There, there's not a seller that's worrying about having to, you know, sell the house because they have some financial issue. So when you're dealing with high end folks, uh, and you're trying to motivate them out of like you know the traditional ways you motivate, say a uh, you know a non high end seller. Um, it's not going to work. <laughs> so you better be sensitive to their financial uh, prowess, and you better be sensitive to their financial fortitude because they don't have to sell, and, and they're not going to react positively to you putting those types of pressures on them. So you, it's, a, it's a bit of a dance, and, and it is what Michael said. You, the deal has to make sense to them. But in, 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 many, in many cases, when these guys have multiple homes, actually it makes the process easier because they have other places they can easily transition to. You know, So these are all skill sets you have to develop over time. Um, so in this, Michael, your market, is it a balanced market or is it a strong seller's market like most of the country? Um, what's interesting is that our market has become very challenging at the high end. And our, our average sales price has actually declined lately. I think, it, I think it's as a result of um, uh, a revitalization of Center City, Philadelphia, where we're finding more and more buyers like the idea of a walk-to location in an urban environment. So what what we're finding is what we, previously we have, you know, either younger people or people that were empty nesters stay in the suburbs. We're finding they're circling, they're either circling back to the city or staying in the city longer than they had before. So we're getting competition uh, in the suburbs uh, to a revitalize, uh, you know, uh, center city Philadelphia. Someone just um, reminded me in chat. Someone just reminded me in chat. We promised the listeners uh, three primary lead generation spokes. Do you have another one in mind? Um, I think that online. I think online is very important. But I also would uh, would encourage everyone to invest, test, and don't guess. It's, it, and so I, I've done that. I've done that with 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 Google AdWords. I've done that with Facebook. Um, uh, and and it's important to to measure and see exactly what the cost per lead is. I have found with pay-per-click, for example, that it's costing right now about fifty dollars to to generate uh, a lead, and industry standard one percent conversion on an internet lead that's five thousand dollars for each sale. To, and and, and I, I think that's unre, you know, unrealistic to you know to generate any kind of return. But I know it's market specific, and some are able to purchase internet leads for less money, depending upon how competitive Google is in your particular area. So, um, but I do think there's an opportunity in certain markets, for, certainly for uh, for internet leads. So I, I would I would pursue that. I would pursue. Uh, a seller strategy on Facebook and a buyer strategy on AdWords. Do high-end sellers see a team, generally speaking, as it's presented in the marketplace? Is that seen as an attribute or a detriment in the eyes of the seller? Detriment. I, okay. That. Uh, we but, don't, but, 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 stop. Stop. Stop right there. I want you. I want you to. I want you to re-say. I want because this is so true, right? And we had yeah. other. So that most you, Michael and I didn't practice this prior, but it's it's always the same answer. Listeners, please, please listen. High end sellers, and I will go as far as to say most experienced sellers, 
will not see a team as an advantage. It used to be seen as an advantage 10, 15 years ago. But anymore, if you present yourself as a team, they're actually going to prefer somebody who has a different approach, even though that person might have assistance. So I'm handing it back to you to explain. I find that none of our none of our sellers, none of our clients want to get delegated to someone. They the reason they hired us in the first place was because they thought that they were going to get they were going to get our attention and our expertise. And they're, they get very upset when they feel they don't have they're not getting touches from us. I don't care how frequently our our assistant reaches out with feedback uh, and with housekeeping issues, they need to hear from us. And if they feel like they're not, uh, they're going to go elsewhere. So I don't. I have never advertised ourselves as a team. It's always been you know the Robin Gordon brand. Um, and uh, I think at the high end, uh, that makes just makes sense. I, uh, I I can't see doing it any other way. Well, the pendulum swung the other way. That's what's happened. In the marketplace, and a lot of agents aren't aware of this, the pendulum is swinging away from, now we're not saying don't have assistance, don't misunderstand what we're saying, but strictly from a uh, consumer perspective. And, and, yeah, he's dealing with really wealthy homes, uh, really wealthy sellers, really expensive homes. But this is this is starting to percolate down into the lower ends because people have – the perception is, is I want to deal with the man or the lady who's running the show. I don't want to be delegated. And, um, you know, there's no elegant way for you to go in there and explain to a seller who's used to getting their way, who goes in there and you said, you know, we're talking Brioni suits and everything yesterday, <laughs> who's used to walking into Brioni and doesn't just buy off the rack. They actually walk into uh, Brioni and they are shown to the private room in the back. Okay, that's what type of sellers – you know, he's dealing with on a regular basis. Where they go to order their new Ferrari, they don't just walk into the dealership and order a Ferrari. They're again shown to a private room. That's what you guys have to understand what the expectation is of these high-end sellers, and you have to meet them where they are. Um, you know, a lot of agents, Michael, they'll talk about service. I hate that term when I hear people talking about it. Like I'll say, what is it that you do that's different? Why well, deliver better service? That, that's an intangible. But what does that mean to you? What is it that a seller receives when they list with Michael and Robin Gordon? I think communication is the most important uh, the important service. Communication is important, but I but I also think that honesty is important. Honesty is critical. They I think it's very important to be uh to be completely honest with them about about uh, uh pricing. Um that's when the sale is made, and 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 so I think that's uh, that can't be underestimated how important that is. I also think that that uh, that they can expect us not to avoid confrontation. It's part of the job. So if it, and I also believe there's this huge myth out here out there that the customer is always right. I don't think the customer is always right. I don't think the seller is always right. The seller often has unrealistic expectations about everything in the process, starting with the price. So I think it's important for us to not be afraid uh, to explain to them exactly what uh, uh, we feel, and um, and and those who uh, and those who get it are going to be a good match for us, and those who don't, you know, uh, they can go elsewhere. 
So in a world where people are used to getting their way and calling the shots, how do you subtly take control and then bring them down to the reality of the market without uh, pissing them off? Well, I think it's a matter of just simply, uh, you know, I, and I'll address this from a from a pricing standpoint. It's just a matter of going through uh, comparable sales, and and it certainly helps having sold many of the homes, you know, having sold homes in the area where uh, we're speaking from a position of authority. But uh, it's just a matter of being genuine, uh, presenting the data, presenting the, 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 the comparables, and, and, and explaining to the seller what the pricing should be. Or with respect to, a, uh, with respect to an offer uh, and terms and describing what the terms are, explaining what's customary and what's not customary. But I think it's just a matter of being genuine and being honest. Um, I, I think there's just too much – I think there's too much buying of listings – and, and too much overpricing, and, and the sellers are – I just don't think that I, – I think that's a huge mistake to make for any agent at, at any point in their career. In the high end, how much do you have to fight for commissions? Um, where we have to fight for commissions is, is um, what we've seen an increasing um, clawback of uh, – of, of, on, on inspection on, and repair issues, it's not uncommon for us to see forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars of requests for um, a seller concession on price as a result of the as a result of the home inspection issues. So what what's been happening is the seller is asking us to take a commission hit to absorb some of that clawback. And that's what we really have to fight for, you know, you know, fight to hold hold our deal together with respect to our, our commission. That's happening in all price ranges. How do you fight against that? Are you doing pre-inspections? Are you sort of laying the groundwork that their deferred maintenance isn't going to be your problem? I mean, how do you set yourself up so you're not going to be set up when it comes time to fix their leaky roof? It's a matter of managing expectations on the front end, and when you and, and when you're when you're um, pitching the listing. You, we talk about the landmines and hurdles that have to that have to be overcome along the way. You know, one of the landmines that we overcome is the, you know, is the home inspection, and we explain to them what to expect. The other landmine that has to be overcome is the appraisal. Um, so, you know, we talk through that in, a, you know, while we're pitching the listing, so that the seller has some idea as to what's going to happen uh, uh, throughout the you know, process. So, in a world where you guys are at the top of your, well, I don't think you'll agree with this statement, but I'll say it anyway just so you can refute me. In a world where you're at the top of your game, where you guys have climbed the mountain that you set out to climb, you know, about a decade ago, what's next? Well, one of the things, one of the things where I think I, uh, I made a huge mistake, and and I would, uh, I would certainly advise uh, newer agents to to think through this, but. You know, we sell uh, an asset class. This that it's probably one of the best products in the world. You know, it has it has it has such an op- it has such such opportunities for for owners of, of of real estate for to make money from appreciation and the tax benefits and the leverage that you get and 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 particularly as a professional investor. I I made a mistake by not by not purchasing. Uh, rental properties um, in my career, 
And so uh, I, I, that's what I would like to do. I, I would like to start to to purchase investment properties and take advantage of um, you know the knowledge that we the local knowledge that we have and 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 start to start to uh, develop a portfolio of income producing um, properties. I think that I, well, I yeah yes. Yeah. Real estate is the ultimate durable good, that's for sure. That's interesting that you said that, too. I think listeners will all – of everything we've talked about the past two days, I bet you that's the one that's going to be the most impactful, if you want to know the truth. Because that really can't be – real estate, guys, as an investment vehicle, is second to none. There's nothing – and it doesn't matter. Markets go up, markets go down. But there's no other type of investment where you can – not always, but where you can benefit from the de- depreciation – from the appreciation and from the cash flow. There's nothing else like that. You know, a business doesn't necessarily, you know, have all those benefits. Some will, that's the argument, right? Well, I'll start my own business. Well, you know what, you could, but it's, you know, real estate for the most part is a passive thing. Stocks don't deliver on all three of those uh, categories. So real estate really is second to none in terms of a way of building long-term wealth. Um, so listeners, and- listen to what he said. That's fantastic that you were honest about that. Thank you. And it's true, and, and it's true of, you know, I don't care how much money you make selling re- selling real estate. It's almost impossible to get rich. And I think that's mm-hmm. the reason, you know, you've said that realtors don't retire, because they can't. The way you get rich is not by selling the real estate. It's by owning it. And this is true of business owners where, you know, they have a business, they've owned it for 60 years, and they happen to own the real estate. And at the end of the day, the real estate is, is, is where when they sell the real estate, that has more value than the business. So, um, I, Yeah, you're reminding me of a really funny real estate client I had like 20 years ago. This guy uh, was looking for this really big estate in, uh, you know, in Columbus, and as, uh, his way that he built wealth, Michael, is exactly what you just said. In this 70s, he had a bunch of roller skating rinks. You know, you remember those? And yeah. well, roller skate, roller skating was a passing fad, but he had all the real estate paid for, and so all those roller roller skating rinks uh, became locations for big box stores. <laughs> you know, they put they put a different elevation, and he put all these ridiculous long term leases to, you know, and, and that's that's how he pivoted. Now he became really rich off the paid off real estate. Yeah, and I like what you said too. Real estate itself, selling real estate won't make you rich. And rich is where your money works for you and you no longer have to work for your money. You have to reinvest the profits that you make from selling real estate, which gets back to another recurring issue is if you have no profits from your real estate business, you want to have everything to reinvest and you'll never be able to build wealth. So it's, uh, you know, these are all little truisms. And it's, and it's nice to hear someone uh, at Michael's level telling you guys, reinforcing really the message that we tell you every single day on the radio because he just hit on three of the high points that we talk about uh, most days. So, Michael, one last question, albeit self-serving, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, Coaching, what has it meant to you in your success? Well, um, it's so – it's actually just – it's so great, Tim, to have seen what you've accomplished having, you know, uh, been one of your very first uh, coachees. So, um, uh but but i can i can say that you were so instrumental to what uh what i've achieved and i think it gets back to you know not re- reinventing the wheel yourself i think i was able to get a fast start because i benefited from your experience and the experience of uh you know of uh, uh of your insight of your accountability 
Um, and uh, I, I, I don't think we could have gotten the uh, the quick, the quick, resp- the, you know, the, the sort of the rapid ascension that we did without coaching at that point in our in our career. So I don't think you can. I think you need to do it right away in your career. I would I would make that investment, and I know it'll pay off. It certainly did with us. Well, so you're going to send me 10% of all the revenue you guys have earned for the last <laughs> 10 years, right? That, that was the deal we had, right? I, I don't remember. Uh, no. well, <laughs> I remember writing out a check to uh, to my competitor if I didn't if I didn't accomplish oh, yes. something that was. You know. <laughs> oh, I think it was a gal too, wasn't it? Was exactly. It, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> I uh, well, listen, Michael, we went away over. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, I think without knowing it, you're more motivational and more inspirational than you think. I really love the fact that you're at a point where you are really embracing the whole idea of you know, contribution and uh, giving back to the industry. In, in my opinion, Michael, and, and you and Robin you know, I, are living testaments to this, there really is no other business um, that you can get into as an entrepreneurially-minded person that's better than selling homes. Just, I don't even think commercial real estate's not as good. People will argue tech companies and all the rest of it. No. What you guys are doing now, your real estate licenses, you at some point had some inspiration to get your real estate license. This really is an industry without limits. And if you're not experiencing that, if you're not really completely uh, living and loving that mindset, you know, you do need to seriously check yourself on that because it's, chances are it's your mindset that's holding you back from experiencing literally millions and millions of dollars in personal income. When Michael said he and his wife have earned over a billion dollars or have added over a billion dollars in home sales, a billion and a quarter, something like that, some of you are doing the math in your heads. <laughs> You're multiplying by uh, 3%. And it is a huge number. And they've done that, guys, in a little less than 10 years. You can do the same thing. Be strategic. Be smart. Take action. That's the most important thing. And as always, if there's anything we can do for you, request a free coaching call. A lot of listeners are starting to reach out um, Michael, that are top producing agents. You know, we've had a lot of top, we've been blessed with having some of those top producing agents like yourself for coaching clients. Um, and we're getting a lot more that are pivoting away from maybe some of the coaches they've had for a while. If you guys, if that, if that's you, I want you to email Julie and I directly at tim at timandjulieharris.com and julie at timandjulieharris.com. And uh, Julie and I are, are considering, and we probably will take on 10 private clients each. Um, as a lot of you guys know, we haven't been taking on private clients for years, but we're considering doing it because, frankly, we love doing it and it keeps our skill set frosty. So uh, if you think you might be a good fit, uh, let us know. And, and, and of course, if you're, if you're not ready for Julie and I personally, we have what I believe to be some of the best, most talented, sincerely uh, service-minded coaches in the industry who will also be a potentially a great fit for you as well. So, Mr. Michael Gordon, I sincerely appreciate um, – connecting with you. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate your time on the radio. And uh, you know what? Thanks for being a friend for all these years, too. I appreciate that as well. Feeling is mutual. Thank you, Tim. Uh, listeners, we'll talk with you on the radio tomorrow. Don't forget to do, as always, after every radio show, please do share this with as many other agents as you can. Uh, let Michael and Robin Gordon's success story be the inspiration for you to build your own uh dream business. That's what it's all about. If there's anything we can ever do to help, you guys got the information on how to reach out. Have a fantastic day, and we'll talk with you on the radio tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris 
Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.